The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest and member of the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. How are you this fine evening? Doing well, Father. It's great to be here. Yeah, great yeah. to be with you. It certainly is. Yeah. Father, we uh, we had a, a bit of uh, a bit of interest in our, our last program, it seems, where we... Uh, we Spent some time uh, discussing Malachi Martin. Uh, we had a, a, a viewer write in a, a question about him and your uh, your impression of him, and you uh, related some some information about Malachi Martin. But uh, there seems to be more that that we could say about uh, about Father Malachi Martin. Father, anything you like? Well, to add? as I mentioned, Tom, I mean, I'd only met uh, Malachi Martin one time and spent a couple hours with him in the company of others, actually, and. Um, then also, I perused uh, uh, you know um, one or two of his books, mm -hmm. notably the Keys of This Blood. I recommended people look at uh, page six thirty two, page six thirty three of that book, and uh, see what he wrote there. And uh, I think they'd share my amazement that it uh, didn't create a quite a stir when it came out and sold a million copies and more. <clears throat> I'd mentioned that uh, that I, I have. I think credible sources who say that uh, Malachi Martin was present at a took consecration in Connecticut, and um, that he offered to conditionally consecrate the person involved because there were serious questions about the validity. <clears throat> and the story that was told there, I don't think the person who told me that was making it up, but it just seemed bizarre to say that uh, Pope Pius XII had called in twelve priests suddenly at the Vatican during World War II and said, I have to consecrate you bishops because if the Nazis invade, I've got to provide for the continuation of the church. As though if the Nazis invaded the Vatican, it would be the end of the church. That's bizarre. You know, you can't help but think there must be, um, if there is anything at all to the story, there must be something more to it. <laughs> you know, because you can't imagine Pius XII saying, I'd better consecrate to uh, 12 priests uh, really quickly before the Nazis invade, because if I don't, it's the end of the church. It doesn't make any sense. <clears throat> and yet, that's the story as I got it. That's the story as the, the gentleman said he got it. But also, I mean, I, I heard uh, Malachi Martin on uh, Art Bell's program. <clears throat> Art Bell was a uh, broadcaster, radio, who had a late-night program. I'm sure many of our listeners have encountered that at one time or another. And he always had the rather bizarre and the, uh, the peculiar. And uh, he had um, Malachi Martin on once. Malachi Martin, uh, well, actually, uh, what, what he said I thought was very interesting, quite frankly. And uh, I can see that Art Bell was rather intrigued by it, too. Um, Malachi Martin assisted in exorcisms, as you know. But something he said just threw me for a loop. But he, he said that uh, witch doctors and shamans uh, 
actually could cast out evil spirits by the power of the Holy Ghost. And that doesn't, that doesn't make sense. I don't think, I see how in the world that makes any Catholic sense at all. <laughs> the witch doctors and shamans who are actually in league with the evil spirits, right, <clears throat> can cast out evil spirits by the power of the Holy Ghost. That seems totally contrary to what our Lord was talking about in the gospel. Uh, <clears throat> but he was accused, right, of being possessed by, by a devil, having just cast out a devil. They accused him of casting out devils by the power of Beelzebub, right, the prince of devils. And uh, that would seem to be completely at variance with what uh, Malachi Martin said and repeated on that show. So uh, I must say, I don't know what to think of him, honestly. It comes down to that. I think there was a, a certain interest in our viewership or re listenership, or as the case may be, whether it's by YouTube or, or podcast, whatever it is, but uh, uh, in the name Malachi Martin, because they probably find it rather intriguing too. Yes. But um, certainly in his books, there's a lot of um, um, there's there's a lot of veiled truth with regard to what has happened to the church over the last 60 years or so, and uh, with Vatican II and so on. Something that now Archbishop Vigano is making quite explicit. But anyway, uh, I would just say that it, I leave it at this, that we sh should pray for him, pray for his soul. Right? That's what any good Catholic would do, and pray for his soul and his salvation. And, uh, and that's the greatest service we could render to him right now. Okay. <clears throat> well, Father, uh, if you're up for it, we have uh, several emails that I'd like to try and get through. This first one um, is from a viewer in New York who writes in and says that there is a program out there on the VidAngel platform, a new television program titled The Chosen. He said, it has come to my attention that some traditional Catholics are beginning to watch this program uh, because some already use the VidAngel service. And uh, he says, this viewer says, after watching a few episodes, it seems to me that the program, The Chosen, has taken many liberties with the story of our Lord and therefore would not be appropriate to watch. However, he says, I'm obviously writing because I believe we need the opinion of the clergy on this matter. So, Father, we, we've done just uh, just a, a bit of research on this, uh, The Chosen program, but could I just get your, your thoughts on this, Father? <laughs> well, <clears throat> as you say, Tom, uh, just did some rather hasty research. Um, and so all I know about it is what I've, uh, come across in the last, well, the previous 45 minutes, basically, right? Um, and that's not much, but it is, it is enough to be wary. My, my initial reaction to any such series about the life of our Lord is that any portrayal of our Lord's life in, in the media has to be an interpretation. And when you deal with an interpretation of sacred scripture, you're really, um, <clears throat> you know, you, you do not have divine commission to do that. You know, there is only one divine authority on the face of the earth that Christ established, and that is His own Church. And that is the traditional Catholic Church. The uh, the apostles and the true successors of the apostles are still have and practice hold and practice the traditional Catholic faith and religion. 
you know, they would, they would be the hierarchy of the church and they would have the magisterial power and they would be able to judge and interpret the sacred scriptures. But uh, that is authoritatively, right? The fathers of the church, um, the church has always told us, when they speak unanimously, speak infallibly. Because they represent the church uh, and the church's belief at that time, in the early days of the church. So it's actually a representation of the ordinary magisterium of the church when they speak, which is an infallible source of truth. So, uh, barring that, I mean, anybody who comes along who wants to, uh, you know, write a play or dramatize any element of the gospel is pretty much on his own. And he's interpreting it for himself. And it's an interpretation that can very, 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 very distorted very easily. <clears throat> I mean, you can, you can, uh, you can, uh, uh, take liberties with the dialogue, you know, obviously you're going to be introducing, if you're going to stage uh, an episode of the gospel, you're going to be introducing dialogue. Um, you're going to be introducing names. You're going to be introducing characters, right, that are not really there uh, in the sacred scripture. And you're going to be uh, getting actors to portray them. And uh, the actors themselves can convey a whole story as to who is sympathetic and who is not, <clears throat> whether the, the character actually corresponds to the real honest-to-goodness, you know, St. Peter or St. Paul or the Blessed Mother. Uh, that, that all depends upon your interpretation, what you're looking for, who you're going to cast in that role. So uh, this is fraught with peril. I mean, we've seen, oh, you know, the King of Kings, we've seen various um, portrayals of our Lord that have fallen far, far short, rather obviously so. Uh, from what I've read about this, The Chosen, I, I just get the impression it's like uh, the gospel light, in a way, and somebody's fanciful interpretation of it to make it a, nice, a good read or a nice story, you know. But uh, I gather that so many liberties have been taken that one cannot say, okay, what I'm, what I'm seeing portrayed here is the gospel. It's a story kind of loosely based on the gospel. Um, you, someone pointed out to me that Mary Magdalene was originally, as a little girl, called Lilith. Well, the Lilith myth is part of the Gnostic teaching, you know, <clears throat> this idea of her being known as Lilith. I mean, we have the Lilith fairies today, and she was the original Eve who rebelled against Adam and asserted her uh, female uh, superiority, or at least equality, and uh, she became uh, the symbol, and has become even in our own modern times, a symbol of rebellious uh, woman liberation. Uh, but it's not just women's liberation against man, it's women's liberation against God. You know, this is, and ever, all of the occult seems to be wrapped up with that. Why they chose, you know, a little Lilith, maybe because they were playing off the theme that Mary Magdalene had been possessed by seven devils, and the Gospel does say that our Lord cast seven devils out of her. But this whole idea of her being known as Lilith until our Lord managed to cast the devils out that the uh, that the priests of the Jewish law couldn't cast out, and then she comes up and somehow embraces our Lord afterwards, and it happens at a tavern or something like that. Um, I mean, obviously, there's there's a lot of uh, uh, with the editorializing, artistic license, uh, whatever you want to, whatever you want to call it, um, 
but they're obviously taking a lot of liberties with the gospel account. Mm-hmm. So I'd be very careful. I'd, be, I'd really warn any adult. I'd ask him, uh, why are you watching this? Are you looking for something spiritually uplifting? And uh, I'd recommend you just read the gospel and <laughs> bypass you know, somebody's uh, perhaps very saccharine rendition of it, you know, and his own imagination gone, uh, gone wild. Sure. sure. Okay. And uh, also, Father, you know, we um, it's we talked about the the VidAngel platform that it that it's produced on. If I understand correctly, I I, uh, I, I know that the um, at least in its beginning stages, it was a, a group of, of Mormon LDS uh, people who who formed this this VidAngel group. Um, and I, I guess the the filmmaker him, himself of, of this, the the chosen uh, Dallas Jenkins, mm. I, I think his his name was. Um, he no sure. relation. <laughs> he certainly um, doesn't doesn't seem to be. Well, Catholic. his father Jerry Jenkins, right? He, he's a co-author of the uh, the uh, Left Behind, Behind series based upon the Rapture, yeah. and which is a terrible distortion yeah. of of the New Testament and God's. Uh, and our Lord's words and St. Paul's, St. Paul's words, right? Mm-hmm. So if this is the, the faith, uh, what should I say, um, platform from which they launch this interpretation, uh, it's very faulty. Uh, so, you know, the church says beware of yeah. these yeah. <clears throat> freelance efforts because uh, they're just too, uh, too fallible, too subjectivist, and... Uh, and uh, they can be more more distortion and less gospel yeah. as they are interpreted. So, I mean, just because somebody has the name Jesus and, and, and the name Mary Magdalene and the name Mary of Nazareth and the name of, of Peter in there doesn't mean that they're telling the story of you know the true account of the gospel. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> so one has to be very careful. I understand that uh, there were nineteen thousand people who contributed. Ten million dollars yeah, to produce these series, the, the biggest dollars. crowdfunded yes. media event in history. history right? yes, yes. That's very curious, yeah. and uh, it sounds like quite a. Uh, I, I guess in terms of the numbers of people and dollars, that's impressive. Yeah, definitely. But in terms of the accuracy and the portrayal of the gospel. That means nothing. In fact, that probably is even a little more worrisome, yeah. all of that input. So um, yeah. I don't know that our Lord himself would have been impressed, and I don't think he would have. He did certainly didn't do it that way in the first place. So uh, I don't want to discourage people from uh, you know trying to uh, f- what faith-based um, films or whatever the media. Yeah. I don't want to discourage that, but I, I just caution people that it can uh, be misleading too. Sure. All right. Uh, another email here, Father. What are your thoughts on the current nationalist movement in Europe, which is relying heavily on Catholic support? He says we have Slovenia and Italy, Marine Le Pen in France, and Bolsonaro in Brazil, and many others who are using Catholic imagery, imagery to support their cause. Is this good for the church, or is it bad for the church, Father? Well, what's good for the church is what helps save souls, of course, right? And what portrays the church in her true light as Christ established her. Bolsonaro, I know, has spoken openly of 
I, as I recall, the kingship of Christ. And uh, I don't know to what extent he himself is a believer. I get the impression that he does believe in some fashion or another. But, uh, of course, I mean, all of these people are dealing with the Novus Ordo. They're all dealing with the Novus Ordo Church, uh, with Francis and the Novus Ordo bishops under him. And they're all finding themselves at odd with, odds with it. Why? Because uh, Francis uh, condemns populism. And the reason he condemns populism is because populism uh, believes in national integrity, the integrity of the nation, the integrity of the culture. Uh, the Catholic Church has traditionally spoken well of the integrity of the nations of Europe and guarded them and, and wanted that to be protected. Uh, it's the globalists, the socialists, the progressives, so-called, all the leftists, want to dissolve <clears throat> national borders. And, uh, you know, the, the, their goal is globalism. No loyalties, no nations. Um, <clears throat> you're a citizen of the world, which means, basically, you are um, powerless, which, which means you are basically just a cog in the wheel of a communist uh, state run by a one-world government. Right? That, that's where it's heading. Uh, if we let them have their way, that's where it's going. And uh, so I would say that Le Pen and, uh, and uh, Bolsonaro and Solonyi, is that his name? I should know Salvini. that. Salvini. And uh, in Italy, mm-hmm. um, I think they've, they've got a lot of things right. And um, now I know there are, there are accusations that they are, uh, you know, tend toward racist racism, or they tend to uh, nationalism in the bad sense of the word, uh, you know, uh, making the nation almost a religion unto itself. I don't know that. I haven't seen that in them. <clears throat> that they've exalted uh, nationalism to uh, the level of a Hitler or anything. Although the enemy is going to try to portray them that. Uh, their enemies will always slander them and try to uh, <clears throat> misrepresent what they're saying. But insofar as they're trying to, uh, you know, maintain their national integrity, insofar as they see that they are being invaded and the Catholic culture that has been uh, formed over centuries and centuries is now being not only diluted but uh, just just destroyed by invasion, I mean, they have a good case to make there. So I can't, you know, endorse them uh, uh, just unequivocally. I don't know enough about them. But what I've heard of them and their stance is that they're, they're basically trying to uh, maintain the, the integrity of, of their nations, Italy, Brazil, France, um, and that they are trying to resist the leftist takeover to dissolve those nations into a one-world um, uh, government by, by basically, uh, first of all, breaking down the national borders into kind of spheres of influence. <clears throat> and um, to that extent, they're doing the right thing. Um, the, um, I, I gather that they also want to preserve the Catholic culture, the traditional Catholic culture of those nations. And again, to that extent, I think they're doing the right thing. I might find out tomorrow that there are other things they're saying that I could in no way uh, 
mm-hmm. agree with. It would be not consonant with Catholic teaching. But I haven't, I, I, I guess I'd sum it up by saying I haven't heard any of them say anything that I would find at odds with the Catholic, Catholic teaching. Okay. Good. One thing they all have in common, and that is they are all mercilessly attacked, uh, ceaselessly attacked by the leftists. So they must find something in their message yeah. which uh, opposes uh, godlessness. <laughs> you know. um, so, anyway. Okay. All right. Uh, another email, Father, this is from a viewer all the way in the Philippines. And uh, he says that uh, his parents in the Philippines have a small convenience store and they sell a variety of goods such as foods, soft drinks, and snacks including liquor and cigarettes. He says, in fact, liquor is, liquors and cigarettes are among the best-selling products, but I'm reluctant to help selling them because I think it could possibly be a sin. So what are your thoughts on this, Father? Is it a sin to participate in the selling of liquors and beers and cigarettes? No. Why not? Well, is it a sin to smoke cigarettes? Is it a sin to drink beer? There are an awful lot of people who would be uh, very upset to find out <laughs> it would be a trade beer, right? Uh, especially the monks who brewed it, right? Uh, you know, at a time when water wasn't even safe to drink, you know, and they brewed these drinks because they had a content which made them somewhat antiseptic and therefore safe to drink. Um, there's nothing wrong with alcoholic beverages in, in, in say. I mean, uh, the gospel, the, 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 the Bible itself, you know, talks about wine... God, that God has given us wine that it may rejoice the hearts of men, you know. With Tavichet Corveum, Corhominis, or Hominum in this case. But um, here's the, the problem, though. It can be abused, right? Obviously. And the abuse, obviously, is sinful. Anything can be abused. So if something is taken excessively and, and does harm rather than good, then it would be sinful to, to use it. It would be a sin of gluttony. And uh, then, certainly, I mean, if, if one is selling beer to a um, an alcoholic, right, and knowingly and taking advantage of his alcoholism to to uh, fuel the beer sales, that would be sinful, clearly. But simply to you know sell a beer to somebody who just drinks it and suffers no effects from it, just enjoys it, that would not be sinful. Okay. Um, you know, look at our Lord's first miracle. What did he do? Uh, changed the uh, the wash water into wine. He changed the wash water into fine wine. So uh, our Lord isn't going to set a bad example uh, <laughs> by providing wine for the wedding, the guests at the wedding feast, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and use that as his as his first miracle, first public miracle. So, and what did he take at the Last Supper and transform into, and transfigure into his own blood, or transubstantiate, I should yes. say, into his own blood? He took the wine, the chalice of wine, and consecrated his own blood. Okay. Again, our Lord isn't going to give an example of something sinful. Sure. Would be blasphemous to suggest it. So, no, it is not wrong to sell these things. Um, but it would be wrong to sell them if they're going to be used as a weapon against oneself or someone else, right? If it's going to actually do grave harm to them. Sure. Okay. <clears throat> then we have a couple questions about the SSPX, Father. Um, 
one in particular here about Archbishop Lefebvre. Have a, a viewer who asks if Archbishop Lefebvre ever encouraged the faithful to attend the Novus Ordo Mass if it would, quote, benefit them spiritually. He says that uh, some among the SSPX resistance are, are uh, touting this claim, and he says especially Bishop Williamson has been known to say this. So, what are your th did, did Archbishop Lefebvre ever say that, Father, to your knowledge? I never heard him say anything like that. Does that sound consistent with something? I, I never heard him say it, and I have not until this moment heard anyone say that he said it. So it comes as a surprise to me. Um, so I, I don't, I don't believe that he had that position. If he did at any time, I don't think he held it for long. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, then uh, he has another question here. He says, "Were there any times when uh, Archbishop Lefebvre?" would uh, at least give the impression that uh, he agreed with um, the uh, with with yourself and others on the the question of the uh, the current uh, papacy with I guess at that time John Paul II and the post Vatican II popes were there any times that he gave an impression that he would have agreed uh, with kind of the, the position that yourself has taken well there was a there was an instant at the table at Oyster Bay when uh, Monsignor Lefebvre himself said explicitly, and say this, you would say this in French, it's a little more, it seems more convoluted, but in English it's, I will not say that he is not the Pope. That would be John Paul II at the time. I will not say that he is not the Pope, but neither will I say that one can't say that he's not the Pope. So, you know, this was the way Archbishop Lefebvre expressed his thought on the subject. I will, he would not say that John Paul II is not the Pope, but he wouldn't at the same time, he wouldn't say one can't say that, uh, which would indicate, which did indicate to me that he thought there was an, an argument to be made, and it wasn't uh, un-Catholic, un non-Catholic, anti-Catholic to say that one believed that John Paul II wasn't the Pope. Mm -hmm. I, I think Archbishop Lefebvre would acknowledge uh, that... Uh, there were those who legitimately had come to the conclusion that John Paul II wasn't the Pope, uh, as a theolog based on theological arguments. <clears throat> but if they were wrong, it wasn't their fault. It was because of what John Paul II was doing <laughs> that people were questioning this. And it would be the same thing with uh, Paul VI before him, perhaps, and <laughs> and uh, you know Benedict afterwards. And of course, Francis. Now, I mean, it's it's what they're doing. It's what they have done to the church that that makes people seriously question whether popes, true popes, can do what these men have done to the church. And um, can they change all the sacraments? Right. Well, actually, uh, great theologian Francesco Suarez said no. That a pope who who did that would would try to do that would be automatically schismatic. He'd be a schismatic. He cut himself off from the church itself. So, um, you know, there, there are great theologians in the church, doctors of the faith, going back centuries, St. Robert Bellarmine among them, um, who were great champions of the authority and the power of the papacy, but who also held that there were standards the pope had to meet. And uh, there were certain things that would call into question whether someone was ever the Pope or, or had, could retain the papacy if he did these evil things. Um, so I think Monsignor Lefebvre was just acknowledging that fact, mm -hmm. that, you know, that 
Let's just say that the church has acknowledged that it, it can happen and uh, that it's not wrong to question it. Okay. That a pope could eliminate himself from the, from the papacy mm-hmm. and could actually eliminate himself from the church, yeah. as it were. Well, speaking of the SSPX, Father, we have an interesting email uh, concerning the SSPX and the 1983 Code of Canon Law. We have a, a viewer who um, who asked, essentially, Father, isn't it uh, kind of illogical and contradictory for the uh for the sspx to to claim that they that they you know that they accept this 1983 code uh, of canon law and yet uh in practice obviously they don't and it's almost seems like they kind of pick and and choose and and she even provides a, a quote here that she found um particularly startling and uh we we actually checked it ourselves she provided the link and and sure enough on their sspx website um under the article uh, titled Fast and Abstinence Rules, it says that um, <clears throat> that one will easily fall into mortal sin who confines penance to only those days and acts required by the current law. So how can they say that uh, here we have this 1983 Code of Canon Law that they uh, claim in, in some manner to follow, and yet at the same time say that uh, one who, who adheres to this can easily fall into mortal sin? Does that make any sense to you, Father? Um... Not Catholic, not in a Catholic sense, no. I mean, it doesn't make any Catholic sense. Yeah. To say that the 1983 Code of Canon Law is the current law yes. of the of the Church, of the Catholic Church. This is what the SSPX is teaching. Yeah. This is what they're teaching in their seminaries. This is what they're teaching to their their those who are going to their priests. Right? They're teaching, and they have for years, that the 1983... The code of John Paul II is the law of the church that is now in force. Yeah. And yet they say on their website that if one follows that with regard to the laws of fast and abstinence, it would be, what, did he, what was it, the expression? It can easily lead, er, Easy. er, one can, one will, it actually says one will easily fall into mortal one sin. One will easily fall into mortal sin yeah. for following the universal, what they say is the universal law of the church. Yes. Now, this is an abomination in my mind. I mean, it is um, like a blasphemy against the church to say that this is her universal law yeah. in force governing the church, and it easily leads to mortal sin. Yeah. How can that be? You can't. But you see, this is the problem with the SSPX and all of those who would try to mix traditional Catholicism with modernism. It will always lead to blasphemy or sacrilege. It will always lead that way. Because traditional Catholicism and modernism are polar opposites. They cannot be reconciled. And in trying to reconcile them, one will always fall into sacrilege or blasphemy. And this, to say that the church itself has proposed this 1983 Code of Canon Law as the universal law of the church. I mean, the Code of Canon Law is a secondary object of the church's charism of infallibility. Does it say that the universal law of the church with regard to fast and abstinence in this 1983 code, which is now in force, they say, easily leads to mortal sin? If one follows that, right? If one follows that, mm-hmm. that is out, that is awful, just awful. And it makes me question their very sense of the church and ecclesiology. What are they teaching? What are they teaching these young men who come to them to be made priests? And where is, where is this going to lead if they actually uh, somehow intellectually 
make peace with that and, and somehow reconcile uh, these two things. It uh, it gives a very very distorted idea of the traditional of the true Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. And Father, even in this article on their website, if one um, scrolls past past that that beginning section, it it, uh, it lays out kind of the the norms following the the Code of Canon Law for fasting and abstinence, and it provides the 1983 uh, uh, outlines, and then right below that it provides the the traditional. Yeah. Um, things, but but it, it has a section that uh, that says who is bound to observe these laws, and they provide the 1983 norms, and then they say the law of abstinence binds all Catholics beginning on the day after their 14th birthday, and then you scroll down, and they have the uh, the guidelines of traditional penitential penitential practices. There we go, <laughs> and uh, it says who is bound to observe these laws. And it says the law of abstinence bound all Catholics beginning on the day after their seventh birthday. Their seventh birthday. And so it just it provides both here, and it's almost like do, do it's contradiction. Do, do, does one get to pick and, and choose? Today? Yes, Tom. I've heard that before. That on their calendars they give both, and they say pick which one you want. <laughs> do they get come to that? Right now, you'd think that the those who want to be traditional Catholics seeing that would say this is not a reliable voice. No. This is not a guide to follow here. No. It's amazing how many just go along with that, though. Yeah. But you see, this is the Novus Ordo. This is what the Novus Ordo was all about. Pick and choose whatever suits your mood or your fancy at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you're basically making up a religion out of script, bits and pieces of tradition and modernism and piecing it together. Yeah. Um, this, this, but what you wind up with is not traditional Catholicism. It's still modernism. Right. So um, it's it's just like trying to reconcile the Novus Ordo with the traditional Mass. You know, as though the two of them are compatible. Um, like the fraternity, such as the fraternity of St. Peter, or we have across the river here at, uh, you know, a church of Novus Ordo ordained clergymen who are still offering the traditional Mass, more or less, and but they're part of the diocese. And they're part of the diocese because they say, well, you know, that's where the church is. See, so we have to be in, 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 we have to be under the umbrella of the church. But you ask yourself, well, okay, but the church you're talking about is the Vatican II church that, that is practicing modernism, right? Do you agree with that? And they would say, yes, it's practicing modernism. The religion they practice in that diocese is modernism. You'd say, but that's the church. You're saying the Catholic church. Well, yeah, that's the Catholic church practicing modernism. But you want to practice the traditional Catholic faith, that is, practice the traditional Catholic religion with, within that realm, right? Within and be part of that. And yes, yes, that's what we have to do, to be, you know, in, within the church. You say, well, is modernism Catholicism? Is Catholicism modernism? They would say, no, absolutely not. Is modernism a different religion from Catholicism. Probably they would say, yes, it is different. But Pius X made it clear in Pashendi, it is different. A different belief system with a different practice. Okay, And that's the Novus Ordo that they say they reject. But nonetheless, they are formally in league with it. They say they have to be. So my question to them was, well, how many different religions can you have in the same church? You know, how many, and they will never answer that question. I've asked, I've asked people that before who are, 
wanting to try to practice the traditional Catholic religion within the framework of the Novus Ordo and with the approval of the Novus Ordo authorities. And I asked him, well, okay, you're, you're acknowledging that there are two different religions involved here. And the traditional Catholic religion is practiced within the realm of the Novus Ordo with their approval and under their auspices as part of them, actually. But it's a different religion. And you're telling me that modernism and Catholicism are two, and actually not only two different religions, they're mutually opposed religions, right? And you're saying they're in the same church. How can that be? Well, you see, the problem is with doing that when they do that, they have become modernists because now they're saying, they're actually agreeing in practice that you can have two different religions, you can have two different faiths in the same church. And they say it's the Church of Christ, the church that Jesus Christ established. That even affects the very concept of God. <laughs> you know, If you can have two different mutually exclusive religions and faiths in the same church established by Christ, that affects your very concept of who God is. Mm-hmm. The, that's why I say you can't mix these two without sacrilege and without blasphemy somewhere. You, it's inevitable you're going to wind up drawing some blasphemous conclusion or in some doing some blas- sacrilegious pro- uh, practice, you know, at the liturgy, whatever. The um, And once you've said that, once you've admitted you can have two different faiths and two different religions in the same church, you've just admitted the entire principle behind ecumenism, which is the centerpiece of modernism. You just became a modernist. And so I had to tell these uh, would-be traditional priests across the river here, you know, you really are a bunch of modernists. You really start with the modernist principle that you can have multiple religions or multiple faiths in the same church. So if you can have two, why can't you have 20? And why can't you have 2,000? That is not the Church of Christ, though. It can't be the church that Christ established. in any case, uh, I'd like the opportunity to have a little chat with them someday. <laughs> I see. <laughs> I'd like to know what they would have to say mm-hmm. for themselves. Okay. They're leading a lot of people astray, though. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> well, Father, anything else that uh, you'd like to end with uh, today before we close the program? Well, please uh, pray for the soul of Father Chikata, certainly. Yes, and yeah. we've got uh, also Mr. Jonathan Sapp mm-hmm. is going to be having, we pray, life-saving surgery this week. So. Yeah. Please keep Jonathan in your prayers. And uh, there are so many other dear, very dear good souls uh, we, uh, we should pray for in justice and in charity. Okay, so please remember them. And I'd recommend that at every Mass that our listeners attend, they come to the me- memento of the living, they come to the memento of the dead. And I would recommend to them that they do remember uh, three different groups of people. They will certainly remember remember at those mementos people who are near and dear to them, as they should. But they should remember also those they might have, uh, who, who were their benefactors, who did good things to them and gave good things to them. All their benefactors, they should remember. They should also remember those who were their victims. That is to say that each and every one of us has faults and the faults affect that of the souls badly. Sometimes our bad example, our negligence, and so on, can actually do some damage and scandalize other souls. We should pray for them. At the memento of the living, at the memento of the dead, we should remember those who are our benefactors. We should also remember those who are our victims of our failures as well and ask God to 
to somehow compensate them for our failure. And there's a third group, and that is we should pray for those for whom, over whom we will have influence in the future, that they have the graces from God to take whatever good example we can give them and learn from it and hopefully be inspired to return to the practice of the traditional Catholic faith again. Maybe many of them had never knew what it was to be traditional Catholic in the first place. They grew up in the Novus Ordo, <clears throat> or not even that, perhaps. But we have to pray for them at Mass that God, in advance, will provide the graces they need so that when the time comes that we have an opportunity to do them some good, we are able to do that good for them. And they will be responsive because the grace of God will be there with us and with them. So those are, those are three intentions that I think are very worthy to remember at the memento of the living, the memento of the dead at each Mass. Okay. And uh, thank God we can right, try to uh, influence others to love him more. You know, when the priest uh, gives Holy Communion to souls, especially the little souls, the, little ch the souls of the children, uh, the greatest comfort that he has, the greatest consolation he has, is the thought that with each Holy Communion, with each host that he places in the tongue of a little child, he's actually eliciting from the little child an act of love for our Lord, you know? And uh, with that in mind, I mean, the priest would be very happy to administer Holy Communion to thousands of people at a time. If he just would have thought in terms that with every one of those little souls who came to, those innocent souls who came to receive him, he was eliciting an act of love for our Lord from them, you know? That should be our constant thought, what we want to elicit from our own souls, but the souls of others too. We want to, uh, and make them, as St. Teresa the Child, Jesus made very clear, to love our Lord and make him love. That should be our mission in life, really. Absolutely. Well, Father, thanks for being here tonight. Appreciate uh, your time. Certainly, Tom. Yep. Thank you. Yep. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.